Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. This week, our guest is an author and the foremost expert on the Soviet Union and Russia, Steve Kotkin, professor of international affairs at Princeton and senior fellow at the Hoover Institute. Remember, we take your questions. So write to politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can, but don't forget to tell us where you're from. And please check out the links to our sponsor, Miracle Brand, in the show notes. We thank you for supporting our sponsors. It really helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, James, you know, David Remnick says that Stephen Kotkin is the smartest expert on Russia he's ever known. That settles it for us, James. Steve now at the Hoover Institute has written several books on Russia, including two volumes so far of his trilogy on Joseph Stalin. Steve, we invited you on primarily to talk about Putin and Ukraine, which we're going to get to, certainly. But let's start with the death of Mikhail Gorbachev. What's his legacy? A very paradoxical He's the only figure in modern history who could have won a popular election in every single country of the world, except one, uh, which of course is the country he lived in. Uh, His legacy will be predominantly one of something he didn't do, which is when the Soviet Union was destabilized and the Communist Party was wrecked, uh, mostly unintentionally by Gorbachev, and it started to collapse, he did not bring the world down with it. He restrained himself from using force on a massive scale. And as a result, the end was predominantly peaceful. And that's the legacy, and that's a huge gift to humanity. Because, Steve, other likely leaders, Soviet leaders back then, Brezhnev and Dropov or, or, or Putin, would have probably been a different story, a, uh, a, more, a, a more, more bloodshed. Well, that's the paradox of, of Gorbachev, Al, because those guys would not have embarked on the kind of reform project that he embarked on. Right. So they would have never faced the dilemma that he faced, which was to pull back, give up, and go back to repression, crackdown, uh, one-man rule, or let it unravel and go forward and allow history to take its course. So they wouldn't have been in the position to make those decisions that he put himself and the country in. So that's why I say very paradoxical. In, In some ways, he'll never be popular at home Uh, But his popularity abroad uh, will only grow with time as other tragedies and and, and terrible situations unfold in Eurasia. His intern, his problem in the Soviet Union was that his goals were basically incompatible. He wanted to reform, didn't he, and not replace a rotten system. And Glasnost and Perestroika and communism just aren't compatible, are they, Steve? Uh, You can't be half communist, though. You're either a communist and you have a monopoly on power or you open up and reform and liberalize and other people decide not only do they want those freedoms, but they don't want communism. And so squaring the circle, reforming communism has never worked. It's always led 
to self-liquidation of the system unintentionally. Uh, Hungary in 56, uh, Prague in 68, and of course Gorbachev, which is why I never thought Xi Jinping and the Chinese would commit suicide by embarking on political liberalization. Yeah, and they and they haven't. They've, they've cut back. Putin despised about everything Gorbachev did. And I, I don't think I, you, you would know much better than I don't think you'd call the Russia system communism today, but it's certainly autocratic. It's dictatorial. Uh, uh, he, he took lessons, didn't he, from from Gorbachev's uh, miscalculations? Uh, all, all of them took lessons except us. So, uh, of course, Putin's regime is not communist. There is very little nostalgia for communism in Russia today. And that's because like George Orwell wrote at the end of Animal Farm, you know, the pigs, they converted it back into Manor Farm. That is, they reprivatized everything that they controlled de facto. Uh, communism doesn't work for the pigs, that is for the elites, because they can't own the property outright. And so communism is finished. It's finished globally, in fact, in many ways, because it doesn't work for elites. They much prefer an autocratic regime where they can own everything, not just command everything. But there is a lot of nostalgia for the Soviet state because the Soviet state predated Lenin. It predated the revolution. It's the old Russian state, the old Russian empire. And for better or for worse, uh, Gorbachev destroyed that. And that is a source of tremendous tension and actually outright uh, I would say, um, near hatred on the part of Vladimir Putin of Gorbachev's legacy. Yeah. James? So, uh, Prof, it, we talk about, let's talk about the Russian army for a second, and then it, I think it said something they're going to draft to call up 172,000 people. How well are they trained before these these Russian soldiers are deployed to combat? Because we have an idea of the way that we train a, a, a infantry soldier or Marine, and it's not the, the same idea the Russians have, as I understand it. The Russians had an army, an elite army of about 30,000 to 50,000 men inside uh, several hundred thousand troops, not including reserves, who were supposed to be called up in wartime. But since this was not a war, it was a so-called special military operation, they didn't call everyone up who was supposed to be called. Those 30,000 to 50,000 elite troops who were trained and with modern kit, they got wasted at the beginning of the war through incompetence and corruption and Ukrainian bravery and ingenuity. And so Russia lost a lot of its modern part, a small narrow stratum of its army. And now it's left with a huge swath of people who are either poorly trained or really untrained and come from the lower orders and have no other opportunities in life other than to sign up to be a murderer in Ukraine. And so when they say, James, that they're going to call up 100,000 this or 100,000 that, it's a bluff because this is a regime that's afraid of mobilizing its population. It's demobilizing its population, right? It's not allowing people to go into the streets. So the idea of allowing them not just to go into the streets, but to arm them 
at the same time is antithetical to the survival of the regime. So they're scraping the bottom of the barrel. They don't have the army necessary to attain their goals. But having said that, James, they're the ones occupying Ukraine. They're the ones in control of Ukrainian territory. So we cannot say that the Ukrainians are winning the war, even though the Russian performance has been abysmal. So in, in Putin's mind, how does he think things are going in Ukraine? About as expected, worse than expected, or better than expected right now? Just his, his frame of mind. Yeah, James, I wish we knew. Right, right? I know. His frame that, of mind. That's, that's why we have people of, like you for smart speculation. <laughs> yeah, there's a whole lot of speculation, and not much of it is very smart, James. Right. Uh, Russia doesn't leak like a sieve. They have a different political system compared to what you guys are used to in Washington. Uh, so we're not sure what he thinks. We're not sure what kind of information he's relying on. Uh, we're not sure who he's talking to. You know, how narrow is the inner circle? It looks very narrow. Uh, we know that he went into deep isolation with COVID, even more so than before, and he hasn't really come out of that isolation. We know that a lot of the people he promoted are what we call negative selection in sociology. That's when you pick people who are stupid and incompetent and non-threatening so that as the dictator, they won't figure out how to replace you, how to take over your position. So, for example, his defense minister is a construction foreman who never really served in the army. And so we're not sure what's going on there. It doesn't look good. If you look at the results, obviously something's been going very, very wrong. At the same time, though, what he makes of that is anybody's guess. I would say the following. Uh, it's not going according to plan in the sense that they didn't take Kiev, the capital of Ukraine, because of Ukrainian resistance, right? The, the bravery and ingenuity of the Ukrainians inspired the whole world. And no one predicted that. Putin didn't predict it, and, and the Europeans didn't predict it, and certainly the U.S. didn't predict that level of resistance. So that threw everybody for a loop, not just Putin. And then what do you do next? Well, uh, you kind of try this and try that and try this, and maybe the other side folds, or maybe something bad happens in the world elsewhere and people take their eyes off of Ukraine. It's a kind of survival maybe muddling through, maybe let's see if a plan falls from the sky into our laps. That looks good. So before I turn over to Al, one, one question. Where can myself and Al and people that listen to this show, where's a place that they can get reliable analysis and information on what's going on in Russia and the Ukraine? Is there any site that you can recommend to us? Yeah, James, that's a really good question. Uh, what I do is I follow uh, the Russian language material, obviously, and that would be uh, the Telegram channels in Russia. There are a lot of individuals with Russian language Telegram channels. That would be the YouTube. Some of the Telegram stuff leaks onto YouTube, but for people who don't uh, read or speak Russian, it's right. much more challenging. Me. And there I would say, yes, the vast majority of people, yeah. obviously. And, and there I would say that the, the choices are, are much more limited. But we have certainly the Carnegie Endowment in Washington, which is probably the leading think tank 
on Russia-related stuff right now. They even had a branch inside Moscow until very recently that was excellent, and but was driven into exile. And so if you go on the Carnegie Endowment website, uh, you'll see a whole lot of really good policy briefs that'll bring you up to speed. And then that'll take you, some of the links will take you to some other stuff. But you have to be careful not to watch cable television uh, because, um, well, how to put it, uh, we're stupid enough without cable TV. There's no need to make ourselves even dumber. <laughs> you, I know, Stephen, you're exempting public broadcasting from that. But uh, <laughs> anyway. Uh, yeah, so, so Al, I follow Michael Kaufman, K-O-F-M-A-N, who's right. probably our best military analyst in English on what's going on in the war. Uh, Rob Lee of uh, Foreign Policy Research Institute is also terrific on Twitter and, and other, other places. So you can find people like Kaufman or Rob Lee or others, uh, and some of them are on uh, your wife's show, to her credit. It's Phil Kaufman's last name again. K-O-F-M-A-N. He's at the CNN West and, uh, in Washington, and he was, he was born in Kia. And he's just deeply knowledgeable and able to explain things for your kind of audience uh, when it comes to what's going on Great. in the war. Th- that's what we need. Thanks so much. Great, yeah. Al. Uh, Steve, let me ask you this. The, the Ukrainians apparently have just begun what they, they believe will be a major counteroffensive. Uh, this may be a long, protracted war. goes on forever. But how important is this and w- as far as the message it sends both to Zelensky, the, the people in Ukraine, the Western allies, and to Putin. Yeah, Al, you're right. This is the moment we've been waiting for. It's a little later than we anticipated, and that's in part because the Western equipment took longer to get to the battlefield than we thought it might, and, and also because the Ukrainians had to muster significant infantry to prepare for this. So you win wars, Al, on the battlefield. Uh, you don't win them on Twitter. Uh, you don't win them on cable. You win them on the battlefield. And right now, Ukraine is not winning uh, in the sense that Russia controls its territory. So they need to evict Russian troops from Ukrainian soil. And they need to do this with a massive combined arms operation where you coordinate artillery and, and airplanes and tanks and especially skilled infantry to to take territory and to hold. And so this could be the moment. It could be early. They could be only in the preparatory stage where they're softening the targets uh, rather than going whole hog. Uh, uh, Journalists have not been uh, admitted near the action. And so it's hard for us to tell uh, whether this is the big one or this is the preparation for the big one. But if the Ukrainians cannot mount a successful counteroffensive at scale, not defense, not counterstrikes, but the big one, then we'll be in a position of stalemate indefinitely. And that's very costly. It's costly in Ukrainian lives and infrastructure. It's costly in Western support, Western taxpayer money, a minimum of $5 billion a month deficit. Ukrainian state is running to pay its bills, as well as all the military supplies, which 
means drawing down our own stockpiles here as well as in NATO. So we're all hoping, watching like you, Alan, hoping that the Ukrainians can succeed at one of the most difficult military operations, these combined arms offensives. Let's hope, Al, because uh, they have been very impressive up till now. We don't want to underestimate them, despite the difficulty of what they now have to undertake. And Putin's calculation is, if it doesn't work, that the West will run out of patience, that the Western will will start to evaporate, and no matter how many people he loses, uh, he can outlast? You're right, Al. Russia's weak, incredibly weak, totally corrupt, never as powerful as people make them out to be, but all power is relative, right? So if the West weakens, if Western unity begins to wobble a little bit, if Western taxpayers don't want to spend $5 billion a month plus on Ukraine indefinitely, if something else happens in the world, whether that be Iran or Taiwan or fill in the blank, diverting attention, then Putin's weaknesses, his mistakes, his difficult situation, maybe all of a sudden can become a lot better relative to the situation outside of Russia, right? Russia's grand strategy is if the West is weak, if the West is divided, if the West lacks resolve, Russia is strong. Steve, that's, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that's right. And yet, even if that happens, even if the Ukrainian, any Ukrainian offensive does not succeed and, and Russia ends up with more territory, this really has been a terribly, a, a big loss for Putin, hasn't it? His weaknesses are on display. NATO has expanded to Finland and Sweden. Russia's relations with Western Europe have been badly, maybe irreparably damaged. Uh, e even if the Ukraine war doesn't end quite the way we'd like to see it, this, is not, this has not been a good move for Putin. You're right, Al. He's really undermined himself across the board. And he's put his so-called strategic partner, China, also in a very difficult situation because China, Xi Jinping, sided with Russia and damaged its reputation badly in Europe as well. So, but here's the problem, Al, right? He messed up. It's not going well. He didn't get his objectives. Sweden is joining NATO. Let me right. say that again. Sweden is joining NATO. That's kind of all you have to know about how badly he messed up. But at the same time, this is all coming at the expense of Ukraine. We're in a situation, Al, where what he's doing effectively is saying, I can't have Ukraine. Nobody can have Ukraine. We're going to just wreck this place and make it useless, worthless, destroy all the infrastructure, strangle the economy, kill as many people as we can. And so at the cost of Ukrainian society and, and, and their country, right, Putin is losing. And so, yes, he's in a pickle, Al. Yes, uh, nothing good is really happening, but it's at the expense of all these civilians and Ukrainian troops fighting and dying uh, because he attacked them. And so I'm not that sanguine on the outcome here. Indefinite destruction of Ukrainian lives and property is not a good outcome for anybody. 
No, it's not. James? So I, I can't let you go. I have to ask you a Stalin question. So June the 22nd, 1941, I mean, sure. how surprised was he that, that he, he couldn't have been as shocked as a lot of historians say, say that he was shocked about the German invasion, was he? Or, or is that correct? <laughs> yeah, you're right, James. Uh, our picture is a little bit simplistic about what happened uh, in the lead up up to the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union on June 22nd, 41. So what happened was the Nazis developed this fantastic disinformation campaign. I don't have to explain to you, James, just how powerful stories can be, especially when people want to believe them. And the Nazis put out a story that they were going to issue an ultimatum and that they were then going to demand maybe Ukraine for free, maybe all sorts of things. And so Stalin saw the troop buildup on his border. The German troop buildup, you couldn't hide it. And, and so his intelligence accurately reported the troop buildup. But the other thing the intelligence said was that this was prelude to attack in some cases, but most of the intelligence he was getting was saying an ultimatum is coming because the Germans in, inserted into the Soviet spy network this ruse, this lie about a coming ultimatum. So Stalin was waiting for the Germans to issue demands, and then he would bargain, negotiate, draw it out, maybe even get himself an extra year by drawing it out. Uh, however, it turned out that that was disinformation, a great ploy by the Nazis. You know, Goebbels was pretty good at disinformation, James. <laughs> he he, he could have gotten a job in any... Uh, on any campaign in the United States with the kind of skills he had. <laughs> so I, I always tell my students, I show them the opening of the triumph of the will because oh, yeah. it's so, it, yeah, it, it just stands, the, 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 the airplane above it. Uh, I, I mean, the, the propaganda in that is, is it's just a stunning piece of filmmaking, I think. And you hate to say that about anything Nazi, but it, 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 it was a very innovative film. So my, my final question is, is that it's become a kind of article of faith that Afghanistan, Soviet adventurism in Afghanistan were the reason that it collapsed. How much, I'm sure there's some truth to that. How much, how much truth is there to that? And would it have collapsed without adventurism in Afghanistan? There's not much truth in that at all, James. Okay. So, so. Uh, the Soviet uh, commitment to Afghanistan never exceeded about 110,000 troops total at any one time. They had 650,000 troops in Eastern Europe simultaneously, and they had a five million man army total. The budget, the Soviet military budget was so big that Afghanistan was just a tiny fraction of the state budget in the Soviet Union. And moreover, they had a censorship so they could suppress what was happening there and didn't have the kind of anti-war movement that you guys remember from, from the the 60s and the 70s here in the U.S. So it's a myth that Afghanistan helped bring down the Soviet Union. It didn't help. Certainly losing a counterinsurgency in a country 
that you don't understand is never a good policy. Uh, we don't need to review recent history to understand that ourselves. Uh, but but at the, the Soviet Union collapsed because it was a mess, because it was involved in a geopolitical competition with the A-team, that would be the United States and its allies, and because Mikhail Gorbachev got it in his crazy little head that he could fix this thing by opening it up and allowing people to discuss and to experiment, and, and they wouldn't reject the whole system in his mind, which of course is exactly what the peoples of the Soviet Union did. So Afghanistan was, was bad. Certainly about 35,000 Soviet troops died in Afghanistan. The official number is about 15,000, but from Soviet military intelligence, we know it was closer to 35,000, which is about the number that Putin has lost in Ukraine, according to the Ukrainians, maybe a, a, a fewer according to British intelligence, but still big numbers. And so it was a tragedy, but it was a tragedy mostly for Afghanistan. Right? People say that Afghanistan was the Soviet Union's uh, Vietnam, uh, but Afghanistan was Afghanistan's Vietnam. Tell me, before I go, Prof, I just want to tell you, before I die, I want to come out and see you and pound you a thousand questions about Stalin. <laughs> For some reason, I, I, I have some, it, it, it just such a, you know, unbelievable part of history, to say the least. But, Al, I'm going to turn it back to you because I could sit here and talk about Stalin. Well, and, and see, this thing, is our It's a deal. But, but I got to tell you something about California, guys. So, you know, people think I'm smart. But here's something you got to know. I work at Princeton University and pay taxes in New Jersey. I live in Manhattan and pay taxes in New York City and New York State. My wife works in Massachusetts, so we pay taxes in Massachusetts. And I had an adjunct appointment, which is now going full-time at Stanford, so I pay taxes in California. How many people do you guys know, Alan James, <laughs> who pay taxes in New Jersey, New York, Massachusetts, and California? The only thing that genius didn't figure out how to do was pay taxes in Illinois. <laughs> That's the last big liberal tax hey, I haven't conquered yet. Well, Justice Holmes can give you confidence. He said my taxes buy civilization. You've bought a lot of civilization. <laughs> and, and, and not only. But here's the other piece of that. So I'm, I'm retiring from Princeton University as of September 1st, moving out of New York City and New York State. I'm the only person alive who's moving to California to lower his taxes. <laughs> <laughs> well, the only offset, uh, which I think uh, you know, brings you back into that smart category, is that you did marry above yourself, Steve. So we give you, we, we do give you credit for that. Uh, Secret to life, now. Secret to life. Our producer points out that this is, I think. Uh, the, this is this week is the anniversary of the uh, of the Ribbentrop Molotov uh, agreement in 1939, uh, which was another one of those great moments. Was 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 Stalin uh, had on that too, or was that a smart move on his part? He picked Hitler's pocket in August 39, and and then he facilitated Hitler's rampages across Europe, and then Stalin looked up one day and said, "Wait a minute." 
Now he's looking me in the eye. <laughs> and, and so it was a great idea for about a year, year and change. And then France fell in, in June 1940. And Stalin failed to pivot to Churchill at that moment, uh, which would have been the smart move. In other words, do the deal with Hitler and then double cross Hitler and do the deal with the UK and balance out Germany's power. Uh, but, 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 you know, Stalin was not a genius in many ways, Al. Uh, James, this is back to your early point, right? You can be a genius in your propaganda. You can be a genius in your trying for the will films. You can be a genius in all ways, except once war starts and the battlefield separates the wheat from the chaff, the geniuses from the mediocrities. We see that today with Putin. And in some ways we saw it with Stalin in 1941, although he grew during the war and he learned and was able to absorb some lessons, uh, which so far, uh, that's a trait that Vladimir Putin has not shown. Steve, when does your third volume uh, uh, come out on, on Stalin? Well, if I weren't distracted by these great podcasts, Al, <laughs> we, we'd be closer. And my publisher would be happy, dude. Uh, we're still probably uh, two years away. Uh, I'm uh, 130,000 words done of the 300,000 projected of volume three. Well, wow. we can all look forward. You have been... Uh, we had really lofty expectations. You have so exceeded them. And it's not as prestigious, but we joined David Remnick, uh, uh, Car Carville and Hunter in the fan club, too. Thank Absolutely. you so much, Steve. Absolutely. All right, boys. Be well. Good luck, then. Hey, James, the two Republican advantages in the midterm were supposed to be inflation and crime. You know, inflation still remains troubling. But it may be the crime issue is boomeranging on them. Their tirades against the FBI bowing and scraping to Trump. Biden took a pretty effective swing at them in Wilkesboro this week. It's tough to parade as the law and order party when you're attacking the FBI and defending terrorist thugs who attack U.S. Capitol Police on January the 6th. And Biden, I think, wisely said, we're not only not going to defund the police, we're going to provide more funding for the police, some of it for mental health and other services, and more, and, and in high crime areas for more and better trained cops. Uh, I, think, I think the Democrats have a shot at neutralizing that issue. You know, this is so far the, the weirdest election cycle by far that I've ever been through. I mean, most of the time in American politics, there's a kind of predictable, I mean, you kind of knew in 1980 that, that Reagan was going to win. You kind of knew in 92, after the primaries, that we were going to win. You knew that Obama was going to win in, in 2008. Uh, in, in the congressional elections, if anything, even more predictable. And I just, like, I, I can't believe, and I don't think a lot of other people can believe what a reversal of fortune this has been over the summer. I mean, this has been a bad summer for the Republicans by any definition. 
And the idea that they, in, you, you keep hearing this, they want to pivot away from Trump. They want to get Trump out of the news and have inflation and gas prices in the news. And you hear that constantly. He, not only is he not going away from the news, the news last night, that, this is the worst morning that Donald Trump has ever had, bar none. That, put that photograph of those documents, that, that screamed anything but a librarian's dispute. The ones next to Time file. Magazine stack. Yes, yeah, yes. in the Time Magazine stack. And, and any idea that they're not going to indict him vanished last night. The United States government is now using its resources to come to this. And when they put that in that court filing, that, that, was, that was a huge signal. And in my mind, I, 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 last night was a huge night in American politics. Well, it just, it is. And it follows uh, uh, just an entire panoply of, of, of watching Trump and his apologists trip all over each other. They're, they find a new excuse or a new charge. It was about lawyer-client privilege. It was incriminating stuff was planted. There was a deep state out to get Trump. And then Lindsey Graham, or as Christopher Buckley calls him, Squiggly T. Biscuit, warns there's going to be violence in the streets if you touch any of those orange hairs on my master. Uh, those are not the reactions of people who feel confident in their situation. No, and, and I think that a, a lot of people are realize that they're very far out on a limb, and the limb is a lot weaker than they thought. And, you know, they would be advised to, to, to be careful. And I think some are, you know, others can't. Well, I went last night, and uh, to prepare for this discussion, James, uh, I watched Fox News for, you know, close to two hours. And uh, they, besides ranting and raving about the FBI Gestapo and all that, uh, Sean Hannity had on his detached analyst, Laura Trump. And they said the real problem here is Hunter Biden. If the FBI had not blown out the Hunter Biden case, Trump would have won by millions and millions of votes. Yeah, sure. Sure. Voters concerned about ethics. Voters, independent voters concerned about ethics would have said, hey, I, I don't like the Hunter Biden stuff. I'm going for Trump. That's the best they have. You know, the, in, that, that dissipates. I mean, uh, again, as I pointed out, the outrage, you know, it's the Hillary stuff. They, they, they don't have anything. And they finally got a lawyer who seems to be capable of filing a motion, which is a, a significant improvement. Yeah, they're, they're wanting to have the special masters. The Justice Department doesn't care anymore. They've gone through everything. They were too, you know. So they, they're going to be indicted. It, it, that's as clear as a bell. All right, now for the superb questions that we get from those very learned listeners, James. I'm going to start off with a simple one. But it's great for you. Mike in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. Oh, Huey awesome. Long versus Donald Trump. Are they similar? Uh, in some ways. But, but in Huey Long's defense, he started out with, with the right idea. And he actually did implement some things that, that, that really helped people. The other difference that 
between the two of them is the, the longs never use race. Trump uses it every day. And now, in the end, with authoritarianism, you know, is a kind of a, a valid comparison. But but they are really, really important distinctions between Huey Long and Donald Trump. And the biggest one is the Longs, one of the remarkable families in the, in the South at that time that they, they seldom use race. Uh, and he did have a, a, a general idea that the parties in Louisiana, they will run until him, uh, they will run by the bourbons or the elites. And he, he did help the roads and get, you know, hot school lunches and things that made a difference in people's lives. And, but then he, he went crazy. One, another difference, uh, uh, Huey Long probably had about uh, 25 points higher IQ than, uh, than, than Donald Yeah, he Trump, was but, smart. Yeah, he was, uh, there's no doubt he was a savvy guy. The next question is, I'm going to combine two. Kyle in Portland, Oregon, says uh, that Biden's student loan debt relief is basically a tax cut for middle and lower income students. Uh, he, and, and, and people get to write off business expenses, home ownership and all that. So I think Kyle is favorably disposed. Uh, on the other side, um, um, we have Keith in Renton, Washington, who said uh, the taxpayers give ten or $20,000 to people who, who have ha- had a shot uh, at higher learning. I worked all my life. I like my bonus now, too. I'm a Democratic voter. But is this really a good move for people like me and people in my neighborhood? Uh, I think it's a good question. I am, I'm more, uh, I, I'm not negative. I'm more negative on the politics of this than James is, because I think there are going to be a number of people who aren't getting student loan forgivenesses or didn't go to college who are going to, and the Republicans will be able to play to some grievances and uh, and some resentments. I also worry that it does nothing about the far too high cost of uh, of uh, college. I don't think it's a bad policy, but I'm not sure about the politics. James, you disagree. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I don't know if I'm, I'm, I'm worried about the politics some, too. The, the, the best immediate defense of this, he promised it during the campaign, all right? So you knew, he, he told you what he was going to do, all right? And and when you actually look at it, and I I... I not very big on student loan debt forgiveness as, as some people are. But when you look at the facts, you, you become a little more persuaded. I mean, the cost of college has gone up, you know, I, I don't know, five times inflation rate. They, they, they cut back on all these state universities that people used to be like I did that, that went to state universities for basically nothing. They can't do that anymore. And, you know, it, some of the problems didn't work out, and it's not overly generous. It doesn't, you know. Somebody went, you know, somebody went to Cornell, and they got two hundred thousand dollars in debt. Well, maybe now I don't know if even qualified. They'd have a hundred and ninety thousand. So, uh, but I think you're right to worry about the politics of this because people like my sisters, uh, you know, didn't take vacations, and you know they paid. They paid for their children's education. And there are a lot of people like that, and they, they probably feel like, gee, and, and, and of course, the way they're being told is, is this is a giveaway to some rich kids and, you know, and Democrats paying off, you know, all the college professors or whatever. But it, it it's it's something, I'm not overly worried about it, but it, 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 it's something that they're going to use. Yeah. James, the next is question is from Sandra in Staten Island, New York. 
What she this is for you. What would be the one main Democratic messaging strategy that you would hammer home to appeal to independents for the midterms? You know, I was talking about this. I think the best strategy right now is they ought to put billboards all over the country. Half the billboard is a picture of the Supreme Court. Another half is a picture of Mitch McConnell, and the sign says, please vote. <laughs> I, I, I mean, you, you, usually you, you, you have a message. The idea that we're making economic progress, I, I, I'm skeptical of that because most people, a lot of people don't feel it, and you sort of signal that you, you're out of touch. But I, I think they, they plan it. You know, playing it pretty smart that we're protecting the country from, you know, right wing and, and, and judicial overreach. And it's, it's turned into a, a pretty good story. And just and also just keep hammering Trump. He's he's a, he's going to be a drag on you. And, and you, you know, you, you can you can look and see the way these Republican candidates or Senate candidates are starting to act. I mean. They're getting scared, and I, 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 you know, I guess the conventional wisdom is, well, it's going to, it'll revert to the kind of norm. Maybe the Democrats will win the Senate, but maybe they'll lose the House. Maybe, but it generally doesn't work that way. All right, if you, if the Democrats pick up four Senate seats, they win the House. All right, they just do. It just, they, they, they go in tandem. I know the Senate, the Senate statewide, and, and I, it's a lot of distinctions, but, but historically. There's been mostly convergence in the Senate and House vote. Yeah. And, you know, conversely, if the Republicans pick up 2025 House seats, they'll, they'll, like they'll, 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 they'll break even or win the Senate. Yeah, yes. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think, honestly, what it would say is before going into the summer, we, well, Republicans win between 15 and 30 House seats. Now it's minus 10 to plus 20. It's a yeah. big difference. That is a big difference. That's a big difference. And, uh, you know, I don't know if my statistics are exactly right, but they're close enough. You know, the range has been reduced. And, you know, usually when an, uh, an election takes a direction, it's kind of hard to unwind the direction the election is taking. Yeah, it is. Stan in Chesterfield, Mississippi. Have you ever been to Chesterfield, Mississippi, James? Well, I've been everywhere in Mississippi, and I know it well. And but the thing I'm gonna do as soon as the show's over, I'm gonna check. It, well, it's Chesterfield, MS. That's got to be Mississippi, right? That's what it is. Yeah. Well, uh, Stan, uh, wherever you are in Chesterfield, uh, ask an interesting question. He suggests one reason senators and representatives don't get along with each other uh, prior to our ex-president has been has much to do with real estate. In the old days, members of Congress moved their families to D.C., but D.C. real estate is so expensive they can't afford to move there. Now they go home every weekend to be with their families. Thoughts? Stan, that, um, that really uh, has a lot of flaws in it. Uh, I mean, first of all, you can get less expensive places. I remember one time Tim Russell and I went out to have dinner with Dick Gephardt, and it was about an hour and 15-minute drive from Washington. He bought a cheaper house out there so he could 
uh, have his family here. But, you know, Jerry Ford, after he was president, told me, you know, years ago, the worst thing that happened to Congress was the jet plane. Uh, and that meant that it was easier for everybody to get home. And they've been doing that for a while. It's accelerated in recent years. They don't go home as much to be with their families. They go, go, go home as much to raise money and engage in the perpetual campaign. And Congress, as a result, works, you know, two and a half, three days a week. Uh, so, yeah, I've got, I, I've got problems with uh, high real estate prices in Washington, although we have a place. But uh, I don't think that has much to do with the poison in Congress. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And you certainly know, would know that a lot better than I do. But to, that doesn't keep people away. Trust me. Hey, Hey, James, Wesley in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, you may want to put up two billboards or two split screens. you got a pretty good idea. Why don't I see a commercial every day? A split screen, one half with Trump calling Putin a genius, the other half of the screen showing the carnage from Putin's missiles attacks uh, on Ukraine with dead children and it all. And then back to Sean Hannity asking Trump if Putin is evil and show his, his evasive answer. You know, that might be a... A, a secondary billboard for you. Yeah, I, I, I like the Supreme Court and Mitch McConnell. We, you know, let me repeat, Mitch McConnell is the most unpopular politician in America. Anytime they say Joe Biden or Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer, one Mitch McConnell trumps all of that. Uh, I, by the way, our friend from Chesterfield, I think in Missouri, and maybe he got the wrong, but I is think it? Chesterfield, uh, yeah, I think it's in like suburban St. Louis. I thought Missouri was M.O., I, it is. I, I, again, maybe maybe there's a Chesterfield, Mississippi. I actually tried to look it up on one. James, our next one is, is from Scotty in, get this, Lizard Lick, North Carolina. Lizard now, Lick. I know North Carolina pretty darn well, and I had never heard of Lizard Lick, and I wonder if it was, it was for real. It is. It's only about 20 miles from Raleigh. It's 1,300 people. And Scotty yeah. uh, in Lizard Lick, by the way, I understand you had a pretty impressive event uh, in Chapel Hill uh, last weekend. Yeah, we, I wasn't in Israel, but I was in Chapel Hill, which is you know pretty, pretty nice part of the world. For with uh, Sherry Beasley, former Chief Justice of North Carolina Supreme Court, who's current senatorial candidate. And I, I tell you, uh, when I left, I had a much better feeling than uh, when I than when, before I came. I mean, she was impressive. We got a real, real shot at that Senate seat. Uh, and there's a lot that's going on in North Carolina. And, uh, you know, Bud is not that great a candidate. She is that great a candidate. Uh, this is a place for, I think the Democrats can have some justifiable sense of, hey, we can do this. Yeah, and a couple of congressional seats are in play, yeah. too, in, in the state Supreme Court. A lot going on in North Carolina. That sure this is. Fall. Anyway, Scotty says, every large corporation has involvement with the FBI for security or international locations. Please tell me, where are the business leaders in financial investment class while Republicans are yelling and screaming and criticizing and wanting to defund the FBI and destroy the government? Well, they're, they're, they're hiding in their corporate suites uh, trying to make sure that they don't say or do anything that annoys uh, House Republicans who they think will be in the majority uh, and uh, keep and get more tax breaks. They're cowards. Well, OK, they're cowards, but they're cowards for a reason. I mean, they saw what happened in, in Florida. They saw what happened to Disney. Right. All right. And, and so if, if I'm if I'm a CEO, my company, I don't need this. I mean, I mean, it, it's. 
you know, or, or if you take, which I, I decidedly yeah. do not, that the purpose of a corporation is to return value to its shareholders. That's what Milton Freeman said. A lot of people, you know, that say that, that, that that's the only obligation a corporation has. But, but having said that, I, I, even I would be, if I was on a board of a corporation, which I am not, uh, I'd, I'd be reluctant to do, say or do anything political in, the, in this kind of punitive environment. It's a shame what, what, if, if the corporate had any kind of ethos or, or, or whatever, the idea that a government can target a single corporation is that that's totalitarianism. I, I mean, you can target a sector. You can say, I want to raise uh, taxes on energy or oil exploration, but you can't, but you can't say I'm going to charge Exxon more than I'm going to charge Chevron. That's where, they, and that's basically what they did to Disney. I mean, corporate America is letting things happen to it and are silent on huge issues in the targeting of a, of a corporation or business is a huge issue. Well, I agree with you. Maybe I overstepped when I called them cowards that there's a reason for silence, yeah. but that's exactly what Trump did. Uh, it's exactly yeah. what uh, uh, tr Trump did with some Pentagon contracts. And at some point, I don't accept Milton Friedman's uh, definition right. of, uh, I mean, I think you also affect the larger community. Some of these corporations are going to get pressure from their employees on uh, matters of race, matters of uh, abortion and the like. And I think they have to selectively speak out more than they have. But uh, maybe not. They've ruined everything, but... but you know, now corporate targeting is going to be the new thing on the right. Yeah. James, we close with, with Red in New Orleans, Louisiana. You know Red? You know everybody in New Orleans. Red. Hey, Red, how you doing, man? What's going on? How many, how many games are Saints going to win this year? 11? Oh, come on. I can't, we can't win 11. Red is a big Pelicans fan. He's happy Zion's coming back. Red asks, if Democrats retain the House and Senate, uh, this scenario opens D.C. and Puerto Rico statehood in the next three years. you have any advice on how they play the long game? You know, I think if they do, uh, you know, I think if this has taught them, if you have a chance to do something, do it. And I, would, I wouldn't be surprised. And by the way, the, the arguments against it are not very persuasive. The arguments for it are just a lot more persuasive. You know? Yeah, they are. I mean, well, I we mean, love be, those questions. Please keep them coming. Those that we didn't get to this week, we'll try to get to next week. But uh, we love our audience. Thank you very much. Hey, James, you know, Chuck Grassley, Marco Rubio, and that granddaddy of uh, big lies, Newt Gingrich, are throwing hissy fits and taking out ads and yelling and screaming about the increased IRS funding that their 87,000 new agents are going to be harassing hardworking middle-class taxpayers and small mom-and-pop businesses. In every sense, it's a lie. The legislation just passed by Congress, doesn't authorize 87,000 new agents. It authorizes $80 billion over 10 years to an agency that is woefully under-resourced. Some of that money will go to upgrading their equipment and make it so you get your tax returns you get, and get your tax uh, rebates faster than you do right now. It'll cut through some bureaucracy. And there are going to be more audits focusing on high rollers tax sheets. To close, there's, what, a $600 billion tax gap. That's the difference, James, between what taxpayers owe and what they 
pay. That isn't coming from mechanics, bus drivers, waitresses, or dry cleaning owners. It's the big sharks who use questionable loopholes or just cheat. Maybe a number of those may even be contributors to Chuck Grassi and Mark Rubio and others. Well, you, you make a, a really good point, and I don't know who is against tax collection. I mean, certainly that when you you know you take it out of your check, that's the way most people happen, and they try to get some kind of rebate come April fifteenth. They have to pay the whatever percentage it is. We we know that uber wealthy taxpayers uh, try to do a lot of things to avoid and sometimes cheat on their taxes, and we need to have aggressive enforcement. I can't imagine anybody being against this. Uh, my outrageous, was well, it's an outrage exactly, but I'm making more of an observation. Dana Milbank, who's been writing some really good columns today, wrote a column and said that, you know, the Trump people are complaining that they want Merrick Garland to treat Trump, you know, the same way that the FBI treated Hillary. But these fucking people are idiots. First of all, Garland would never do that because borderline criminal James Comey broke internal government regu justice department regulations by commenting on a case that he was not going to prosecute and in 11 days before the election he reopened it i can assure you trump people that mary garland believes in the rule of law unlike james comey and there is no chance that donald trump is going to be treated the same way that hillary clinton was treated uh, good column dana Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville, and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following the episode, we'd really appreciate it if you check out the link to our sponsors, Miracle Brand, in the show notes. We thank you for supporting them. You know, when you do, it makes this podcast happen. So to keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our war room planning. <laughs>